We Christians uh, live in an in-between world. We live in this space between the already and the not yet. Uh, for us, Christ has already come uh, to bring us salvation, but yet he's not returned as promised king for world restoration. So we live um, in an in-between world, um, and that in-between world is, in fact, war times. Uh, life as a Christian can be very uh, draining. Uh, we struggle. It can be very discouraging, disheartening as we struggle in our marriages and our parenting. Uh, we fight. We have conflict in relationships, be it church, at work. Uh, we are in the middle of what is called uh, war times as Christians. Uh, many Christians don't like the word fight. It makes many Christians kind of nervous uh, in the way that they want their Jesus to be a lot more like Mr. Rogers. Uh, can't we just all be good neighbors to one another? Uh, yes, there's a time where, where followers of Jesus are to... Uh, to, to, be, uh, to turn the other cheek, to be peacemakers, right? But there's no way that you can read the scriptures and see all the warriors of the faith and believe in this complete idea, total pacifism, right? We see heroes of the faith. We see Samson and Daniel and David and Deborah and Paul and Jesus. These guys were warriors. They were fighters. So there is yes, a time for peace, but there is also a time where the Christian has to engage in the fight. In fact, the Bible speaks a lot about fighting. In fact, God himself is a fighter. Uh, in Exodus and Deuteronomy and the book of Joshua, over and over again, Moses and Joshua tell us that God ferociously fights for the hearts of his people. He is this avenger who fights with a holy violence. Over and over again, you don't need to fear the Lord. The Lord will fight for you. Even the Egyptians said, the Lord fights for them. We see that translate over to the New Testament where Paul writes down and, and writing to Timothy says, I have kept the good fight. I've, I have fought the good fight and I want to encourage you, Timothy, to fight the good fight of faith. He encourages Timothy to do that. He goes over to Ephesians. And he tells us to strap up this whole armor, the full armor of God. Why? Because Paul knew that street-level Christianity was going to be a fight for us. This is what it means to be a soldier for Christ. And if you want to live the Christian life, if you want good things in your life, if you want a good marriage, you're going to have to fight. If you want to fight addiction, you're going to have to fight. If you're going to raise Children and kids with heads full of knowledge of God, with hands and hearts zealous for God, then it's going to be a fight. If you were going to fight for sexual purity until the day that you actually experience ultimate sexual pleasure in a heterosexual marriage, if you're going to fight for that, it's going to be a fight, right? Our lives as Christians are going to be difficult. As I said, we are soldiers in God's army. And as soldiers, there's two things that a soldier does, right? A soldier trains to fight and a soldier fights, right? And in fact, a soldier that doesn't do either one of those things is really no soldier at all. Imagine a soldier waking up and says, I don't feel like training and I don't feel like fighting today. I think I'm going to stay in the barracks and I'm going to Netflix binge all day long. That's just what I'm going to do. Well, you know what happens when he doesn't report for duty? The MPs go grab him, right? And they throw him in the brig. That's what's going to happen. You're AWOL, soldier. 
And yet this is where we find many Christians today disengage from the fight, a wall. You can spot them. You can kind of typically navigate who that is. You come up to someone and you say, hey, what, you part of a church? What, are you church involved? Yeah, I'm involved in church. Yeah, I go to church XYZ. Okay, well, cool. What, who's your pastor and what are y'all studying right now? Uh, uh, kind of a stutter, AWOL. Soldier who's gone AWOL, not fighting. If you're a bedside Baptist or a pillow Pentecostal, right, and you're not engaged in church and the commitment of those things, you are AWOL. If you're not fighting daily against sin, fighting to honor Jesus, fighting to study the scriptures, if you're not fighting for those things, then you are a wall. We are called to engage in this fight. So here's what we're going to do. For the next four weeks, we are going to call you, call me, I'm right with you, to fight for our homes, to fight for our neighbors, and to fight for the nations. But in order to fight for those things, we first have to fight for the gospel to rule in our hearts. Because if the gospel doesn't rule our hearts, there's no way you or me are going to fight for our homes, neighbors, and nations. We won't be equipped for the fight. The gospel, which is something we speak often about as our church, um, being a gospel-centered church, I hope and pray that you hear the gospel every single week. If you are a believer in Christ... Remember God's grace on your life. If you are also a believer, uh, you might want to just pause and pray as I walk through this and pray for somebody in the room that actually has never trusted in the gospel before. The kingdom of heaven is very narrow. It's not wide. So there might be someone here today that needs to be saved, the gospel. Without it, you and I have no hope of standing before God. The gospel is this great story called good news that a good one and only God, the one and only God, created a world perfect world and he created you and me in his image to enjoy him to treasure him and to be in relationship forever and ever with him but then we know the horrific tragedy in the garden when Adam and Eve here's what they did they chose to follow their hearts instead of following God and when they did that they brought physical death into the world spiritual death and a relational death to God. And when they died to God, we died to God. From that very moment, for the next thousands and thousands of years, mankind was desperate to restore this communion with the God who created us. But thousands of years go by, and the stain of sin and that separation was all over the world. No matter how many times and heroes of the faith came up through the history of the world, none could measure up to the perfection that God required. We were separated from God relationally with no hope of ever returning to him, not living the life that we were created to live and to be with the God who created us to live. Dead to God. But then the gospel, the good, good news that the, because of the love of God, the grace of God, he made a way. A way for us to escape death. A way for us to find life. But he only made one way. John 14, 6. There was only one way. God became man. Fully man, fully God. 
lived the perfection that the law required. He lived the life that you and I cannot live. Then he died the death that we deserved. On the cross as he's being crucified, God's righteous anger is being poured out on the only one who didn't deserve it. He's paying the penalty for our sin debt. He is gladly embracing the Father's rejection so that you and I could have his acceptance. And then he raises himself up to the dead three days later, defeating death, defeating sin's curse. For all who would trust, for all who would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and as Savior, you get God. Relationally, spiritually, you have life today, abundant life, eternal life beginning right now, and you get him forever and ever. In fact, if you believe and trust in Jesus, you never see the back of God's head ever again, only his face. You see, the gospel, though, is not received by people who think they have little sin problems. If you think that you're getting a B plus or maybe a C minus in goodness, the gospel cannot take root in you. Hell is full of people who have clean rooms, make straight A's, say they're yes sirs and no ma'ams, grew up in church, never had sex outside of marriage. Why? Because none of those things make you right with God. The gospel takes root in people who have gutsy, godly guilt. Who know that they have offended a holy God and that they are ultimately deserving of his wrath and his judgment. Those who are willing to admit that just a few hours ago that you fell to sexual immorality. And you're willing to admit it. Those who are willing to admit they just went on a rage to their kids before they got ready for church this morning, just screaming the yell at them. For the small group leader who told a lie in group last week, the one who's admitting to do that, willing to confess that, to the one who's willing to confess that last week in their neighborhood, they became Peter the denier. And when someone said, hey, is Jesus the only way? And they shrunk back and didn't answer the question. The gospel is received by those who have gutsy guilt, rugged remorse. That's where the gospel takes root. And when it's there, that is when we taste this preciousness of the life, the mercy, and the grace that Jesus, in fact, offers. So as soldiers armed with that gospel, we have to move forward. But the gospel does not just stop at salvation. Many Christians live in this world uh, where they, they, they love the entrance and the exit of the gospel, meaning they, they enter into in, to new life today and then, and then entrance into heaven later. They exit into heaven. So they live in this, they think it's the entrance and the exit, but it's not that. The gospel invades our lives now. The nowism of the gospel is that it penetrates every aspect of our life today. It's not just this pool, I'm sorry, not just this diving board that launches us into Christianity. It's the whole pool. It's not just the story that fixes our relationship with God. It's the 
story that fixes our relationship with everything and everyone else. Our marriages, our time, our talents, our kids, our money, everything. We look at now through the lens and the eyeball of the gospel. It's not just the way to life. It is life. And the way that we grow in our life with Christ is by going back to the beginning, by treasuring and trusting the gospel. So now that, as I said, this is the most important piece of the entire Bible. It is impossible for you to meditate, ponder, and study the gospel too much. No one ever graduates from it. It is central to the life of every believer. So now that we're armed with that gospel, if we can get back to the, main, uh, the front frame of mind that we're warriors, soldiers for the gospel, right? We are armed and we are ready. Now what does it look like to fight for the gospel in our lives, to rule in our hearts, all right? So let's read in the Gospel of Matthew. If you'll go to Matthew 4 and verse 18. Matthew 4, 18. And I'm going to, uh, let me pray, and then we will get into this text this morning. Lord, this morning, um, I've said some things. I've said a lot of words up top today, and we've talked a lot, of, a, lot, a lot of things. They are not more important than this. I have nothing profitable or valuable to say, but you do. Pray that we're a church that honors your word and its supreme authority. Um, we listen to you today. And by your grace and mercy, would you let the things that your word says actually change our lives today, move us to a place of obedience in a physical way. Lord, speak to us now. Give ears to hear your word in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so in Matthew here 4, uh, just to set up a little bit of context here, uh, Jesus is beginning his public ministry, calling his first disciples. All right, he's walking along the Sea of Galilee, which is a, a central hub of a lot of traffic going in and out commercially, relationally, Jews, Gentiles. He was able to do a lot of ministry along the Sea of Galilee uh, without the, uh, the Pharisees kind of looking over his shoulders. So he spent a lot of time there, and he comes up on these men today that we're going to see. Uh, these people, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, we'll get to there, he's, he's already met them one time. Back in the Gospel of John, in, in John chapter 1, uh, they had seen Jesus. They identified in Jesus. They believed in Jesus uh, when John the baptizer was baptizing people. And the Christ rolls up on the set and says, here he is, the Son of Man. They said, we believe. So these men have already believed and identified with Jesus. But he didn't just want them to identify with them. Today is when we see the beginning of when he's calling them to be an actual disciple, a follower, all right? So let's look at this, Matthew 4, 18 to 22. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately, they left the boat, and their father followed 
him. All right, so Jesus rolls up. As I said, he sees, he's walking down the beach. He sees these brothers um, and basically says, hey, turn in your notice, boys. Tell daddy bye. We're going fishing for men. All right, that's kind of what he's doing. To set up some context here, these uh, guys that were fishermen at the time, um, they grew up as Jews, right? They were Hebrew boys. And what Hebrew boy, like, like all people today, they begin their education at the age of five. All right, so these little boys are fishing now. They're grown men. They started an education at the age of five. They didn't do the common core. Uh, they studied the uncommon Torah. All right, so they are studying at the age of five. They begin to study the first five books of the Bible. And if they're, growing, if they're excelling at five and they're doing really, really good, uh, then they, they keep progressing in the faith. And when they get to be 10, uh, they get to either one of two things happen at the age of 10. If they're not making the cut, they basically get cut from the, from the squad. They get cut from the team. Hey, you're really not cutting it. You're out of here. Or they would advance in their knowledge. They would choose a, a, a rabbi. They would begin to progressively study the faith and, and grow as little disciples, right? Well, these guys, they didn't make the cut. They didn't make the cut for whatever reason. These are the last kids picked on the kickball team, basically. Some of you are like, I was that kid. Sorry, don't get emotional on me. These were the least likely to succeed in school. These were uh, the, the very most unlikely peasants in Galilee that Jesus would ultimately choose to start building his church around. The unlikely, right? This is uh, no parent, just to tell you this, no parent wanted their kid to be a fisherman. It was the hope of every parent that their child would be a religious ruler. So the parents didn't want their kids to be successful celebrities, professional athletes. They didn't want all that. They wanted them to be religious rulers. So when these boys were fishing, this was a failure. In the eyes of the parents, oh, you go back to the family business. Oh, you couldn't cut it as a religious person. You're not smart enough. You're not wealthy enough, whatever. But the story screams to us then... And also today that Jesus never chooses the best. He never looks at the qualified. He qualifies the called. This should give us great encouragement, humble encouragement. And in fact, their lack of qualification was their qualification, which is the same today. As Jesus calls us to follow him, it's not because of how awesome that we are, not because we made the cut, not because we're smart, pretty, wealthy, intellectual, hardworking. No, he, he doesn't call people like that. He calls the nobodies, and he makes them into somebodies. Now, notice here in the text here that they did not choose Jesus. Now, culturally, uh, what was appropriate, the custom was that the disciples would choose the rabbis. They would say, we want to be like that guy, right? And they would choose their, their, their rabbi, and then there was a, a process that they would take them through. But initially, the little disciples would choose their rabbi. But here Jesus is reversing the custom. He is the one choosing the disciples. He's the one that chose his disciples then. And he's the one who chooses his disciples today. Look at John 15 with me. You did not choose me, 
But I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should, be, should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Church, this is the doctrine of election. The word elect or election is used 18 times in the New Testament. And it basically is this, that God chose you. For those in Christ, God chose you, according to Ephesians, before the foundations of the world, before you took your first breath, God set his heart and affection on you. He knew your name. This does not mean you don't have to choose Jesus, but it simply means that Jesus chose you first. And we know that all dogs don't go to heaven. See, Jesus on the cross is not purchasing general savability for all people. When he died on that cross, he had names written on his heart, on his mind. And if you're in Christ today, as he was dying a gruesome death on the cross, he was thinking of you, a personal you, your name, not a hope that a bunch of people would come to him but he was dying to secure the names that were written in the Lamb's book of life. That should give you, believer, such a humble, humble confidence that God would choose you and appoint you to bear much fruit. Not because of how good you are, but because of how good that he is. That is a humbling doctrine. Now in this here, when he says to follow him, what did the disciples do? Without hesitation, they drop the nets and get out of the boat. Without hesitation, this is what a disciple does. I remember early on after my conversion um, in Christ, um, I guess figuratively being in the boat, holding on to my nets, and Jesus calling me to do things And I had one foot in the boat and one foot out of the boat. I had one hand on the net, one hand off the net. Pausing, fighting God, not listening to his commands. Didn't really know if I was all in or not. And I just waded through this mushy middle of years and years of disobedience to God. My sanctification was super slow because I did not drop my nets and get out of the boat. Church, in your life right now, What commands has Christ given you that you are not obeying? Maybe it's giving. Maybe it's serving. Maybe it's devoting yourself to reading of Scripture in the morning and praying to Him. Maybe it's devoting yourself and obeying the command to commit to the church and not just visit. Maybe He's calling you to sexual purity to guard your eyes and your heart from the dangers of a media pornotopia world that we live in today. Where in your life are you refusing or delaying to obey Christ's commands? Listen, if you leave this church every week and you never feel, ah, that's... Ah, I feel guilty or shame. If you don't feel that and you always just leave great, listen, either the Holy Spirit's not in you or you've got to respond to that. 
That is the grace of the Holy Spirit. When he gives conviction to the believer, that is an act of grace. It would be great and do you well if you would listen to the Holy Spirit and not continue to run away from it. For your good and for his glory. Because delayed obedience is disobedience. There is no in-between. Drop your nets and get out of the boat. So here... Here's one of the things that I think I could spend some time here. Jesus was not concerned into making these guys Christians. He wanted them to be disciples. And you might say, well, isn't that the same thing, tomato, tomato? Like, what's the big deal? It's a big difference. Let me tell you how that works. In the, in the New Testament, the word Christian is only used three times. Disciple 281. Uh, the three times that it was mentioned in the New Testament, it was the pagan people who used the term Christian to, to, to see what we identified with. Hey, it's like, hey, aren't you one of those Christians, right? The pagans identify and labeled us as Christians. So it wasn't disciple, it was Christians. And yes, we should identify as Christians, right? If somebody says, are you one of those Christians? You better believe I am. Right, And you identify with Christ, you identify with suffering. So yes, we are called to identify. But when Jesus uses the word 281 times of disciple in the New Testament, there's something different. Christian means to identify. Disciple means to follow, to emulate. You see, a, a disciple and, and the rabbi, that relationship, the disciple would literally uh, be yoked to the rabbi. So they went where they went. They were so close to them that they would actually love to get the dust from their rabbi's feet. I mean, they were just conjoined to their uh, disciple. They lived with them. They ate with them. They did everything with them. This is the kind of person, this is the kind of Christian that Jesus wants, a disciple who actually follows him, does what he does, loves what he does, talks like he talks, goes where he goes, this is the kind of person that Jesus is looking for. And I think the problem is this. Uh, in our culture today, we have a ton of people that would say, I'm a Christian. But they wouldn't call themselves a disciple. Why is that? Because they would love to identify with Jesus. They'd love to identify with that. And it's cool and southern and it's salvific, it's, if I just identify with Jesus and call myself, I'm a good moral person. But those same people would not call themselves disciples. Why? Because they don't emulate him. They don't look like him. They don't talk like him. They don't live like him. They don't long to be with him. And there is the difference between Christian and a disciple of Jesus. To be a disciple is someone who fights, because you're going to see these guys, what they're getting ready to do as they get out of the boat. They are willing to fight to make the gospel of the first and most important thing in their entire life. Like, that's, that's the kind of Christian, the disciple that Jesus is looking for, where the gospel is of first importance in their life. Look at Paul's words in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with 
the scriptures. Listen, you and I have got to fight to make the gospel of first importance in our lives. It will not come naturally. There are all things in your life and my life that are trying to fight to be the most important thing in your life. That's not the gospel. What are the guys here in the disciples? What do they fight? Let's look what they had to fight in order for the gospel to be important. When they dropped their nets and left dad behind, what were they saying? Their careers and their family were not first importance. The gospel was. Career and family. Let's talk about family for just a moment. Man, your family, we live in this family first culture, right? Family is blood. Family first. Well, I love my family too. But my family is not the first importance. The gospel is. And these guys demonstrated it. They got out of the boat. Bye, Dad. And I would love to think that Dad here loved that they were getting out of the boat and following Jesus. If my kids come to me at any point in their life and say, I'm out of here. I am going to follow Jesus all the way to wherever he takes me. I am a proud dad. I, I hope that you Christian parents will be good with that too. If your kids came to you and says, I'm going to follow Jesus no matter what. Because this relationship with Christ has to trump all of our other family relationships. You don't may have to lose those relationships, but they have to be put in proper order. Your parents honor your mother and father, but they don't go above Jesus. Your children, parents, listen to me for a second. Your children want to be of first importance in your life. Can we agree on that? They are no respecter of the gospel right now. They want to be all about them. And you can either do one of two things. You can show them that the gospel is the most important thing in your life, or you can placate into their thoughts and dreams. And you can tell them that it's all about them. Show them that the gospel is of most importance in your life, and you will be blessed. Your children will see the gospel in you and will grow to love the Lord themselves by his grace. The second thing we see, as I said, career. These guys had a comfortable career. They knew what they were getting. It was a steady paycheck. Uh, but they left the family business, so to speak, to go all in for Jesus. Their career was not of first importance. Once again, I'm talking to Christians in here today. Is your job more important than the gospel? I think so. Sometimes it feels that way. There's a, a workaholism culture because that's our way our culture works. You work hard, you gain. Are you so caught up in fighting for your occupation, workaholism, that you're not fighting for the gospel? We have to be people that are, don't have roots at our job, that we're willing to uproot and leave our job. If we lose our job for the sake of the gospel, it's worth it. This is what fighting for the gospel looks like. These are the kind of disciples that Jesus is calling us to be. Like I said, we may not, we may not have to lose all these things, our family, our careers, our jobs, but are we willing to do that? Are we willing to be disowned from family and lose our jobs for the sake of the gospel? 
I think they had to fight culture too. I think culture, um, you know, what they're doing here, leaving everything behind and following a homeless drifter is pretty countercultural. I'm like, what are you doing, man? You're following this guy, he didn't have a place to lay his head down. He's got no home. You don't know where he's getting his next meal from. And you're giving your entire life to that? Surely he would be mocked in culture for following Jesus. And there is one of the greater fights that we have as Christians. Fighting to get into our culture, to not isolate from culture, but to insulate from culture. And what Smyrna needs as we go out in this culture, they do not need cool Christians saturated in the culture in order to win them. We don't do that. We don't have to become like them and try to be cool. We have to, be, we have to smell of the sweet aroma of Christ to them. When we engage them, they need to see that, smell that, taste that Christ in us, and that would be something that they would be drawn to. I think the last piece is this. The last fight that we see these guys overcoming, and this is the last call of gospel fighting here, is the fight to fish. When they got out of that boat, they knew what they were going to go do because Jesus told them. He says, we're going fishing for people. They were willing to fight for the gospel, and they were going to show it because they were going after souls to win people to Jesus, to share the gospel. That's what they were going to do. They weren't scattering around, inviting people to a church, running around, showing, look at how good we are. Look at all of our deeds. Look at how cool we are. No, they were going to share the gospel message that we just talked about a minute ago because it was of first importance in their life. And here's what you're going to have to do as you do that, and we're going to lead you to that place in just a minute. You will have to fight your anxieties, your fears, your love affair with people's approval, your addiction to acceptance. We are going to have to fight against those things if we're going to share the gospel with people. So here we're going to do, for the next four weeks, we're going to call you to fight for one. One person. Fight to share the gospel with one person. We're a culture that's caught up in numbers in many ways. We like to measure success by a lot of numbers, right? Uh, scores of teams and football and uh, church attendance and baptisms and more money in our bank account. More, 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 bigger, bigger, bigger numbers. But the Bible actually describes it a different way. Luke, uh, the Gospel of Luke tells us that the Bible is more concerned and celebrates the one. When one sinner repents, angels in heaven rejoice. There's a party in heaven for the one. Yes, we should pray and hope for mass revival, that tons of people come to Christ. But every great movement in the church of God begin with one. So what we're going to ask you to do is who is your one? The gospel's ruling in your heart. You're going to fight for one. Who is your one? This is not 
a who's your one that you're going to invite to church. This is a who's your one that you're going to invite to Jesus. You. Not me, you. This is what it means for the gospel to rule in your heart. That you do what Jesus did. Seek and save the lost. So what we're going to do is we're going to pray. And I'm going to give you a moving piece here. Smyrna is populated with about 40,000 people. And it would be a great uh, travesty if we assume that every single person has heard the gospel and knows about Jesus. I told you last week, I think it might have been a Spurgeon quote, um, that the gospel is so much more sweet, not from one man to 500, but to 500 faithful gospel Jesus lovers sharing that with a lot of the ones. That's his plan for multiplication. That's why we have a church today. Who is your one? All right, let me pray and then we'll move through this piece here. Father, as we ponder and listen to your word and your text and see the faithfulness of these disciples fighting through all the things in their life, to show that the gospel was more important than anything else. And they got out of the boat. They dropped their nets to go fish for men. This is us. Your call to follow, to fish, was not only to them 2,000 years ago. It is the call to us today. God, would you put such a heavy burden, conviction over these things? a confident spirit in us. Would you show us that you are with us as we go out and we share the gospel, that it is your goodness? God, would you bring this person to our minds and our hearts and our affections right now? God, may the gospel be the king of our hearts at this church at Stewart's Creek. In Jesus' name, amen.